Some years ago, Mahatma Gandhi was brought to a Christian convention by a Christian friend who was hoping that as he was there over those three days, he might actually embrace Christianity. In his autobiography, Gandhi writes of that encounter and he speaks of how he had a wonderful time. He speaks of how he enjoyed the preaching and connected with lots of people and even really was moved by some of the spiritual songs that were sung. There was so much about that meeting that he loved, but there was one thing that he just couldn't take. He couldn't swallow. It didn't stick right with him. Here's what he writes in his reflections. He says, it was impossible for me to believe that I could go to heaven or attain salvation only by becoming a Christian. It was more than I could believe that Jesus was the only incarnate Son of God and that only he who believed in him would have everlasting life. I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice, and a divine teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born. It was impossible for me to regard Christianity as a perfect religion or the greatest of all religions. I think Gandhi's quote is very telling and captures a sentiment that many of us share, something that I think lots of us would resonate with. And that is, look, Gandhi was a Hindu and there was lots about Christianity that he could embrace. A lot he could rally behind and get behind. If you talked about the teaching of turning the other cheek or the ethic of loving your enemies or the, the vision of blessing those who persecute you, I think Gandhi could get behind all of that. But the thing that stuck in his jaw, the thing that was most difficult for him, what he could not accept is the exclusivity of Christianity, the exclusive claims that Christianity seemed to make about Jesus. Words like only bothered him. Right? Hear it again. It was more than I could believe that Jesus was the only incarnate Son of God and that only he who believed in him would have everlasting life. Gandhi's struggle, his wrestling, summarizes well the objection that we want to look at today. Okay? If you're new here, let me catch you up on what we're doing. We're in a series called Unbelievable. And what we're doing in these series, this series is we're trying to address some of the common obstacles, common objections, common questions that are hurled at the Christian faith. Some of the hurdles that keep someone from considering Jesus and his gospel, the Christian claim. And so what we want to do in this series is we want to, as best as we can, as humbly, as honestly, as soundly, as cogently as we can, offer a response to each of these very difficult questions. And what we hope to do is to present a case for why Christianity does make sense. We're doing that in a number of ways. One is on these Sunday mornings. And so as you're here, we're addressing as best as we can a response from the Christian scriptures and the Christian worldview. Something beyond that that we're doing is if you've ever been in these kinds of conversations, you know that this needs dialogue. This can't be monologue one way. So you've got questions and you've got answers and we need to talk together. And so even this week, there are a number of dialogues happening throughout this region. If you're here and you'd like to participate in one of them, you can talk with Pastor Binu, who was here before, and he can point you to a conversation that's happening this week in a spot in the region or city near you. Beyond that, we've also got a number, because we said last week we've gone real high-tech. So if you want to ask a question anonymously, you can text that in there, and we'll do our best to respond this week on our website and through our blog. So we want to provide every avenue that we can in which we can engage this together. 
We're not debating one another, but trying to talk with one another, dialogue with each other. And so today, the objection that we're considering is the one that Gandhi poses for us perfectly well, the one that he wrestled with and we wrestle with, our culture wrestles with, some of us wrestle with, and that is how can Christianity claim to be the one true religion? If you flesh that out a bit, it's the this. It's, look, in a world like the one we live in, where there's good, intelligent people from every sphere of life, from every worldview, from every opinion, in a world where there are so many different faiths and so many different worldviews, how can any religion claim to be superior to all the others? How can any one claim to be true and thereby make the others false? If we're honest, for many of us, we would say that seems arrogant, pompous, proud, It seems intolerant, offensive, just plain wrong for anyone to do. You shouldn't be allowed to do that. And so instead of words like exclusive, we would prefer a word like inclusive. Instead of a word like one or only, we would prefer a word like all. All religions are equal and valid and basically teach the same thing. All of them are different paths to the same destination. Don't you see? It's like a mountain where God is at the top, and there's different paths to climb up, but we're all getting to the same place. We're going to the same spot. All of it is leading to the same place. You might call him Allah. He might call him Krishna. She might call him Yahweh. I might call him Jesus, but can't you see? It's all the same. It's all headed in the same direction. And here's the objection. If Christians could just accept that, then we could all live in peace and the world could coexist and things would move on well. Does that make sense? That's the objection. Hopefully I've fleshed it out well for you because I'd imagine many of us feel the angst of that. So then how should we respond? Let me lead us first in a word of prayer as our first response, asking for help for both my mouth as it speaks and your ears as it hears, and then we'll press into this together. Let's pray. Our God, we ask you now for your assistance and your aid. The sun may be shining, but if our eyes are blind, we'll never see it. A symphony may be playing. It's not for lack of the beauty of the song, but our ears may be deaf, and so we'll never hear it. Apart from the help of your Holy Spirit now to aid us, we are blind of eyes to see the glory of God, deaf of ears to hear the truth of God, hard of heart to feel it, dull of mind to understand it. So I'd pray for myself and for brothers and sisters here that you would aid us, that the preaching of your word now would hug tightly to truth, and that the hearing of the word now would fall upon receptive open ears, that we might consider this and that you might lead us we'd ask these things together in jesus name amen how can any religion and particularly how can christianity claim to be true how should we respond well first what i want to do is i want to show you jesus in the scriptures and the reason i want to point you to jesus in the scriptures is first i want to show you why it is that christians insist on making this claim i want you to hear that as a christian listen I like being liked. 
I, I don't really particularly enjoy being thought of as intolerant or offensive or arrogant or proud. If, if I could get everyone to like me, I would want everyone to like me. So it's not that Christians wake up in the morning wanting to be arrogant and pompous and proud. So what is it that forces, that compels a Christian to make such an exclusive claim? I want us to start with seeing this in the scriptures. For that, turn in your scriptures, in the Bibles, to John 14, verses 1 through 8. This is the passage that Kurt read for us. John 14, verses 1 through 8. And while you turn there, let me just set up what's happening. In this passage, Jesus knows that his hour has come. That's what it said in John 13. He, he comes to know that his hour, that is his death, is approaching. He's about to die. And so he turns to his disciples to inform them that he's not going to be with them much longer. Now, as any of us could imagine, that doesn't sit well with the disciples. This is their good friend. They've come to know him. They've followed him day and night for three years. They left everything they knew to follow him. And so when he tells them, I'm going, and where I'm going, you can't come, that hits them like a ton of bricks. And so what Jesus intends to do in John 14 is to comfort them. So you heard Kurt read it. He starts by saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he goes on to say, in my father's house are many rooms. I'm preparing a place for you. I'll come back that you may be where I am. Now, one of the disciples hears all this talk about Jesus leaving and him going and, and Jesus assuring them that they know the way to where he's going. And Thomas, a, a very relatable disciple, one you would have enjoyed, he asked the obvious question. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How then can we know the way? And listen to what Jesus says in response. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now hear me. This verse means exactly what you think it means. There's nothing cryptic here. You don't need a special degree to understand this. He's, he's saying what you think he's saying. Jesus is making here an extraordinary claim. A claim, mind you, that none of the founders of other religions even went so far to make. Hear that? A claim that none of the founders of other religions went so far to make. So, for example, Buddha came and said, here is the eightfold path. This is the way. Walk in it. Jesus says, I am the way. Walk in me. Muhammad says, God revealed to me truth. This is the truth. Believe it. Jesus says, I am the truth. Believe me. Other religions or worldviews will say, here's the way to life. Here's how you can experience life. Do this and you'll have life. Jesus comes and says, I am the life. You have to live me. I mean, Jesus radically turns the whole conversation with a giant arrow pointing to himself and makes the whole thing about himself and says, listen, listen, it's not that you believe it, you believe me. It's not that you walk that way, you walk in me. It's not that you'll come to receive life. I am life. I am the way and the truth and the life, and if that wasn't hard enough, he follows that up with, no one comes to the Father except through me. And listen to me, that means exactly what you think it means. It's not cryptic, you don't need a special degree. He is saying, no one gets to God except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. 
the entire arrow is pointed at me, and no one gets to God except through me. And if that wasn't hard enough, he follows that by dropping yet another bomb. He's not done. Because as he's speaking of the Father, no one gets to the Father. You know the Father. You've seen the Father, Jesus goes on to say. One of the disciples, Philip, in verse 8, asks another obvious question, or a good question. Philip, in verse 8, says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. So here's what I want you to hear. That's a very what would in other places in Scripture be a very commendable question. Jesus is saying, look, I'm, I'm the way to the Father. Essentially, I'm the way to God. And so Philip responds by saying, just show us the Father. Show us God, and it'll be enough for us. And I want you to hear, in other places of Scripture, that would be a commendable question. For example, at least in the Christian Bible, in the, the Jewish Scriptures, one of the heroes is Moses. One of the defining moments of Moses' life that sets him apart from the others is he makes this unbelievably great request. He says, show me your glory, God. And he's heralded as this giant of faith because he, he out of all the things you could ask for, asks for a vision of God. I want to see God. And God even honors him by giving him a glimpse of who he is. And yet what would have been applauded as a commendable question, here Philip is chastised for. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Do you hear what Jesus says? Jesus saying, Philip, how can you ask to show me the Father don't you know whoever has seen me has seen the Father? Philip says, show me God, and Jesus responds by saying, whoever has seen me has seen God. Don't you get it, Philip? After all these years, whoever has seen me has seen God. Friends, you've got to be honest with yourself. Who talks like that? Who talks like that and gets away with it? This is why the quote from C.S. Lewis, the writer and thinker, has become so famous. If you're a Christian, you've likely heard it before, but it's worth hearing again. If you're not, hear this with me. This is his quote. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That's Jesus. Uh, that is, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Here's what Lewis is saying. Lewis is saying, look, Jesus says and does things that other great human teachers don't say or do. Jesus makes claims that other great movement leaders, religious leaders, spiritual leaders, social leaders just do not make. How highly would we have regarded Martin Luther King if he claimed to be God? How well would that have flown over? I mean, you think about this. In his life, Jesus accepts worship. 
For example, there's this scene where Thomas, the same disciple who asked the practical question of where's the way, he will one day fall at Jesus' feet, bow down, worship him, and say, my Lord and my God. In your mind, if you could picture someone did that to Gandhi or someone did that to Martin Luther King, what would you immediately see them doing? You'd see them pick them up and go, no, 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 don't do that, brother. You and I, we're on the same field. That's what you'd expect. Jesus receives the worship and then even goes so far as to say, you're blessed. I mean, would we have a holiday on the calendar if Martin Luther King was walking around saying he was God? We've got an entirely different category for the folks who did that, the loonies who would actually make that claim. Nobody holds them in high regard as great moral teachers. The ones who were delusional enough to make the claim that they were God is in the camp of Jerry Jones. I mean, Jim Jones. Jerry Jones, look at that. Jim Jones, David Koresh, and the others. Does that make sense? That's who we lump together as the folks who claim to be God. And yet Jesus here says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's the thing. Christians are those who don't think that Jesus is just a legend that we made up. We talked through that last week. Who don't think he's a liar. Who don't think he's a lunatic. And who do believe genuinely, honestly, and truly that he is Lord. And so if you were to ask then, why is it that Christians believe that Jesus is the only way to God? It's because Jesus said he was the only way to God. As those who have come to receive him as Lord, Christians must say that Jesus is the only way to God because Jesus said he is the only way to God. And, and listen, when you go through the rest of the New Testament, you find the other followers of Jesus taught exactly like Jesus taught. So, for example, one of the early disciples named Peter, who was there in that conversation when Jesus made these claims, when he's teaching and preaching, guess what he says but the same thing. In Acts 4, verse 12, he's talking to some people about Jesus, and he says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's Peter's way of saying, look, this isn't salvation by a bunch of different paths. There's one name under heaven by which people can be saved. John, another apostle who was standing there in that crowd when Jesus made this claim, he writes in 1 John 2, verse 23, Hear this. John's very black and white. There's no gray in this sentence, so hear it. He says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Do you see what he's saying? You don't have Jesus, you don't have God. You do have Jesus, you do have God. Paul, another early Christian leader and follower of Jesus, who saw the resurrected Jesus, says this in 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 to 6. He says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There's a bunch of words there, but did you catch? There's one God. And there's one mediator, that is one path, one way to that God, Jesus Christ. Listen, Christians hold to an exclusive truth claim because this is what Jesus taught. This is what the scriptures say. 
but you'll say to me, fine, fine, that, that may be what you want to claim, but it can't possibly be that way. That can't possibly be true. It can't possibly be right. And moreover, you shouldn't even be allowed to make that claim. It's, it's offensive. It's wrong. And so you'd launch perhaps a number of objections. And, and I want to challenge you and say that these objections that we've come to just assume to be true are in fact myths if you just look at them long enough. For example, some of you might say, here's, here's one. At the end of the day, Ajay, Sure, there are some differences between the religions, but all religions are basically the same and teach the same thing. Here's the first objection you might raise. Look, at the end of the day, sure, there are some differences between them, but all religions are basically the same and they teach the same thing. You've probably heard that so often you just accept that to be true. What I want to challenge you on is to think and to see past to realize how absurd And I want to even say offensive that kind of a thought is. How absurd and offensive that kind of a thought is. I mean, just 10 minutes in comparing religions, and you realize they're all not saying the same thing. They don't all make the same claim about God or the nature of God, the purpose or meaning of life, the path to salvation, the goal at the end of life. They they don't agree on any of those things. And yet, Some of us will say, no, 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 those don't matter. Those differences don't matter. And we use a giant broad brush to lump them all in together and say, essentially, you shouldn't really care about those differences. They don't matter. Essentially, they're all saying the same thing. Right? Don't don't you see some of the features? They're all pushing you to be good people. They're all pushing for morality. There's a set of ethics that's common to all. And so we giant brush, broad stroke this whole thing into one. I want you to hear how absurd and even offensive that is. For example, let me give you an illustration, and you'll have to forgive how crude the illustration is, but hopefully it serves the point. If I were to take into this room Japanese people, Chinese people, Korean people, Vietnamese people, Taiwanese people, have them all in the room and say, you're all the same. I mean, just, just look, you, you've got so many features that are the same. You're, you're all basically the same. I can tell, by the way, by the nervous look, you already know that's not right. You can't do that. That's not allowed. Is this guy racist? We, we have this, we, in our gut we know, you can't do that. And if I said, no, 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 the, the differences don't really matter because look at the features. There's so much about you that's the same. You're all basically the same. One of you would eventually pull me off the stage and go, you are unbelievably ignorant. And what you're saying is unbelievably offensive and wrong. You haven't taken time to understand the significant differences. In reality, there may be some things that are superficially the same, but fundamentally different. And you are imperialistically using this broad brush to lump all of them together. That's not right to do. It's not not true to do. You've got to take the differences seriously, significantly. They matter. No adherent would agree with you. And so it is a very imperialistic thing to come and say, because I don't think the differences matter, there's no differences. They're all essentially the same. They're all teaching the same thing. I mean, just think for two minutes just, just think for a second. Christianity, for example, says that God is triune. He is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one. 
Islam says that the idea that God has a son is an abomination. It's reprehensible. It's deplorable. It's inconceivable. Hinduism says that God is expressed in perhaps up to 300 million deities. Buddhism says there is no personal God, and so the question is irrelevant to begin with. That's all the same? Christianity says that when you die, you face God in judgment, and those who have trusted in his son, Jesus Christ, are saved and spend eternity with him, and those who have not are cast away from him for eternity. Hinduism says when you die, you come back again, either in a higher form or a lower, based on your actions. Buddhism says that the point of this all is to finally reach nirvana, which is a state of nothingness. You're dissolved. There is no more you. You've become one with nothingness. That's all the same? Or you take Jesus. Islam says that Jesus is a prophet, a good one, a great one, but that's all he is, a prophet. Judaism says that Jesus is a heretic, a false messiah, someone dangerous to be avoided. Buddhism says at best he might be an enlightened guru. Christianity says he's God. That's all the same? Even if you went to public school in Philly, you'd go, I don't know. That seems different. I know we should all know better and lump that together, but it just seems a bit different. It's a myth, and we've swallowed it whole. Some of you will say, no, 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 fine. There are some differences. I'll grant you that. But here's the thing. Ultimately, there's a reality behind all of them, and all the religions have some grasp at reality, but none of them have the whole picture. To say it this way, you might say, look, not all religions are the same, fine, but each religion sees part of the truth, but none can see the whole truth. You get the, the objection? Look, Behind all of it is a greater reality, and each religion might see part of the truth, but no one religion can see the whole truth. This has become an illustration that's famous by a man named Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God. There's an illustration that captures this idea. It's, there was a missionary named Leslie Newbegin, and he kept hearing this sort of uh, response to him. Look, None of us can know the whole truth. We all know parts of the truth. And the illustration was this. There were three blind men, the illustration goes, who went to an elephant. And each one grasped a part of the elephant and began to describe what the elephant's like. And so one went to the trunk and one went to the leg and one went and touched the side. And each reported back what the elephant is like. And so one man said, look, elephants are really long and flexible like a snake, the one who touched the trunk. The other one said, no, 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 elephants are really like a palm branch. They're sturdy and strong. You can wrap your arms around them. And the other one said, no, 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 elephants are really flat and smooth like a wall. I, I touched one and experienced one. And the illustration is supposed to say, don't you see? They're all right and they're all wrong. Each one grasps part of the truth, but none can see the whole truth. And the illustration would go on to prove the point of, don't you see how silly it is when religions fight for exclusivity? When the trunkists fight with the sidists and the legists, shouldn't they all just say, look, we've each got a grasp of part of the truth, but none of us sees the whole truth. Shouldn't we all be a bit more humble and say, we've all got a part of it, none of us have the whole thing. And Newbegin would hear this, and hear this, and hear this, and he never understood what to respond until one day he said it made sense. He said, the only way the illustration works 
is if there's someone who can see the whole thing to know that the rest of us are groping in the darkness. The only way the illustration works is if the very one who says you're all grasping at parts of it claims to have sight to see the whole thing while the rest of us are blind. Don't you see, though you appear to be humble, you in reality are saying, I can see the whole thing enough to know that you can't see all of it and that you all see part of it, though my eyes are working perfectly well. There's an inherent contradiction. You're claiming to have the very sight you say no one can have. You're claiming to have the very vantage point that you say no one can have. Even, even the, the saying that says, look, none of us can know the truth, though it appears humble, Inherent in it is this hypocrisy, this contradiction that says, and I know that because I've seen the whole truth. Enough to know you're all grasping at parts of it. Don't you see you're claiming to have the very vision you say none of us can have? You're claiming to have the very vantage point you say no one can hold. Some will say, fine, fine, listen. It's, it's not that all religions are equally true. The reality is they're all equally false because... Ultimately, you can't believe any religious claim because it's all just a product of social conditioning, right? Some will say, listen, it's not that these things are equally true. It's that none of them can really be believed. Your religious beliefs are just a product of social conditioning. And so the response would be, don't you see, if you were born in Iran, you would have been a Muslim. If you were born in most of India, you would have been a Hindu. If you were born in Israel, you would have been a Jew. Don't you see these beliefs are just products of social upbringing, of geography, of environment more than true or not. You're just conditioned to believe the way that you do. Here's the problem. If every belief is just a product of social conditioning, doesn't that apply to the skeptic also? Isn't your disbelief, your unbelief also then just a product of social conditioning? If every claim is just a product of your environment, then by your own definition, you've got to discount your claim because it's just a product of social conditioning. Unless you were arrogant enough to say yours is the one above all the others and you're immune to your very standard. You see, if you take a sword to cut out all the others, you end up falling on your own sword. The razor by which you cut out every other opinion, you cut your own opinion out. If all beliefs are a product of social conditioning, so is yours. So is your disbelief. So is your skepticism as well. It will not do for us to simply say, look, there shouldn't be exclusivity. What must be done is the hard work of saying which is true. Which is true. We could keep going, but can I tell you something? We've just accepted some of these myths and there's more. So much so that we just assume them to be common sense, but five minutes in, we begin to see them for the absurdity that it is. And, and yet we don't know it because this is the world we live in. We're, we're like fish that have been swimming in water for so long, we don't even know that we're wet. We don't know of another way. And so we've accepted these things as though they were common sense. The reality is, if you could cut through all that with reality, the reality is you all hold exclusive beliefs. You all do. Every one of us holds exclusive beliefs. And that's because truth, by its very nature, is exclusive. 
Truth by its very nature is exclusive. If something is true, it necessarily excludes everything that is false. Truth by its very nature is exclusive. You know that to be true. Two plus two is four. What that means is it can't possibly be five or ever be three. It's four. And if I came to you and I said, listen, listen, I want to say two plus two is five because I'm just trying to keep an open mind about that. Right? It wouldn't matter how sincere I was. At some point in love and humility, you would say to me, brother, I know you're sincere, but you're sincerely wrong. Truth excludes. It's what it does. That's because it's truth. And all of us hold exclusive truth beliefs. All of us have exclusive beliefs. If you'll let your mind think for one more minute with me, I want you to hear this. Even the one who says, let's be inclusive, all religions are equal and valid and lead to the same place, even he's exclusive. Even he's exclusivist. In his desire to be inclusive and have everyone in and say all religions, therefore, are true and valid, even he's exclusive. He excludes, for example, any other belief, namely mine, that there is one true religion and one way to God. You can't help but be exclusive. We all are. So then the challenge, difficult as it may be, is to seek what is true. Let me end by saying this. The truth is all religions are different. They're not all the same. They don't all lead to the same place. The truth is all of us hold exclusive beliefs, and so we can't discount exclusivity. We all have exclusivity. If they're all different, let me just end. You've heard me patiently so far by just telling you what's different then about Christianity as well. They're all different. What's different about Christianity? We said it already. Religion is what? It's man's attempt to reach God. Right? God's at the top of the mountain, and religion is all of us climbing our different paths to get to the top. What makes Christianity different is Christianity says the true God didn't wait for any of us to climb up the mountain. He came down from the mountain to get to us. What sets Christianity apart, the the claim that it makes different, is where the All the religions of the world are us trying to somehow climb our way to the top. Christianity says the true God came down from the mountain to get to us. If religion is man's attempt to reach God, Christianity is God's effort to reach us. And the scriptures say that the true God saw us down below. And that the true God knew that none of us could make the climb. Hear me. The ascent is too high. The steep is too steep. No matter how much you try and white-knuckle your way up, you can't do it. Sure, some of us might climb 500 yards. Some of us, through our sheer will and and personal discipline, might climb 1,000. Some of us fall at 50. At the point, the end of the day, it's Everest. And none of us make the climb. And Christianity says, the true God didn't just watch us all fall to the bottom. The true God came down from the mountain to the bottom. That God so loved these climbers that he sent his own son. He took on flesh and became flesh, man, for us. That Jesus Christ came down to the bottom to get us. 
and that this true God then did climb a mountain with a cross on his back, with bearing your sins and you on his own shoulders and made the ascent so that all who would trust in him would find that they've hurled their sins onto him and now his shoulders, because he is God in the flesh, are broad enough to bear us all and he climbs up for us. He, he came to bridge the gap. He came to bear us on his shoulders and make the climb so that we might be bridged with God, so that we might be reconciled with God. The scriptures say, in your sin, the gap between you and God is too high. All of us fall short. And so God became flesh, bore us and our sins on his own shoulders, on his back, and climbed the mountain for us. That's the Christian gospel. And hear me, this invitation is for all. Yes, Christianity is exclusive in its claim about Jesus, but its invitation is inclusive for all. All of you who would come, all of you who would believe, this is for you. This invitation is for all. Christianity is unbelievably inclusive in every gender, in every type, in every person. For all of us who would believe, Jesus will take your sin. Let me end by showing you again one verse. We read it already. 1 Timothy, hear it again. 1 Timothy 2 verses 3 through 6 says, This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Is Christianity exclusive in its truth claim? Absolutely. Verse 5, there is one God, there is one mediator. There's no way around that. But would you pay attention once more to the words that are around that? Because verse 4 says, he, that's God, desires all people to be saved. Verse 6 says, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. That means that this invitation is for all of you. That means today you might be sitting here and today might be the day where you come to Jesus where you finally go, I've been trying to climb this mountain, but I've got this burden on my back called sin. And I'm trying as hard as I can to climb up, but I can't make this, the climb. Today would be the day where you come to the cross of Jesus Christ, where he died, and you lay this burden down. And you say, I can't, I can't climb with this sin anymore. You take my sin. And you hurl your sin at Jesus, and he'll take it. And you say to Jesus, if there's room for one more on those broad shoulders of yours, I'm in too. And you throw yourself onto Jesus. And you say, I'm done trying to climb this thing on my own. I can't. If you'll carry me, then I'm climbing in too. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. It's not you climb your path. I'm the path. So you, you grab onto his shoulders and you let him ascend for you. This is the invitation to you, and it's for all of you. There is one God and one mediator, but that God's desire is that all might be brought to him through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
In your word, Lord, you say today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. We do not know what waits for us. We have every assumption we'll leave from this place, get into our cars and drive home. Men have assumed that all their lives before they know the time has run out. What is available for us is right now. Now is the time of salvation. So, Holy Spirit, we'd ask you to draw our hearts to Christ. That you would take us and that you would compel us to see Jesus crucified and you would move us to come with all the guilt that we carry, all our sins, this unshakable reality deep in our souls that we're not perfect. And no matter how hard we try, we can't seem to get right with God. And that we might lay these burdens at your cross and say you've taken them for us and that we might throw ourselves hurl ourselves on Jesus Christ and say even today I believe you are who you say you are you are God in the flesh come for us and I throw myself onto you you bring me up oh come move on us all that we might do this together Come do these things and more than we know to ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.